Uh, you want to get out your sermon outline, says a better priest on it. The, uh, we are in uh, Hebrews 4. Uh, we're at a major transition point uh, in the book of Hebrews, starting at chapter 4, verse 14. And it uh, brings this whole new uh, emphasis to the book. So if you turn there with me, Hebrews 4, starting at verse 14, we're going to read all the way through chapter 5 of verse 10. So uh, if you would turn there, that would be great. And then please listen carefully as this is God's word given for us. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, "'You are my son.'" Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word. And as always, we need it. We need it so badly because we are constantly screwing up and filling our lives with sin. And we have a problem and you're the solution. Show that to us this morning. We pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would take the truths of this passage, press them home, and make our hearts believe. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the question for this morning is, do you have clout? Do you have clout? And the answer is, it depends on who you know. Well, that's how Mike Royko would explain the meaning of the word. For those of you that were raised in the Chicago area, you would no doubt recognize the name. For over 30 years, Mike Rocco was the voice of Chicago to the nation. At the height of his career uh, in the 90s, his uh, column was carried in over 600 newspapers across the country. I'm not sure if we still have 600 newspapers across the country. He died in 1997, and afterwards his family 
uh, they published a volume of 110 of his best columns. And uh, then it was so successful they published another one. Um, and uh, he wrote almost 8,000 columns in his career. And uh, the first uh, sort of best of collection was called One More Time. And there's one particular column in that book all the way back from 1967 and discusses the proper meaning of the word clout. And it seems that someone had sent him a copy of Vogue magazine back in 1967, and it had a survey of people with clout. And the list included, and you have to remember, 1967, President Lyndon Johnson, Ho Chi Minh, and the Pope. And Mike Royko wrote a column, and he said, it is a surprisingly dumb thing to write. They have a lot of nerve stealing an old Chicago word and distorting its meaning. And everyone from Chicago knows what clout is. Clout is basically what made the city tick for years and years and years. And uh, uh, Mike Royko's point is that clout never goes down. It goes up. In the sense, clout is what you have if you can call City Hall and make a parking ticket disappear. Cloud is what you have if you can get a private meeting with the governor. Or to use his example, a Chicago police officer might have enough clout with a ward boss to get a promotion to sergeant. And the ward boss might have enough clout with the mayor to get a sweetheart contract for his brother-in-law. And the mayor might have enough clout with the White House to get an extra $10 million in pork barrel money for the city. In 1967, $10 million was a lot. Um, and he says, that's clout. It's being able to reach up and be heard. And it's a grand old Chicago word. If you've got clout, it means you've got friends in high places. And we all understand that because we all know that we need help from time to time. Maybe we can't get a job interview or we can't get in to see the doctor or we need some help at City Hall. We need someone who can cut through the red tape and can help us when we can't help ourselves. And so this morning in this sermon, I want you to see that Jesus is the help we need. And to use Mike Royko's old Chicago word, we have clout in heaven. You have clout in heaven. Today we begin a new major section of the book of Hebrews. And runs all the way through chapter 10. And this whole section has the theme of Jesus as our great high priest. Hebrews is the only book in the New Testament to teach that Jesus is our great high priest. Now, truth be told, my guess is uh, that if you're being honest, uh, you're probably thinking, couldn't we study something more practical? I'm struggling in my marriage. I'm trying to raise kids in this crazy world. I'm wrestling with personal problems. I got sins that are killing me. And now we're going to plunge into six chapters dealing with Jesus as our great high priest. Can't you find something better to preach on? On this matter, uh, the New Testament scholar, Dr. Donald Hagner, offers a helpful word. He says, until one gains an adequate sense of the overwhelming majesty of a holy God, and simultaneously a true sense of one's own sinfulness 
and unworthiness. One is not in a position to understand or appreciate the importance of priests and their work. And our failure on these two points is what makes the idea of the priesthood unfamiliar and without apparent significance or meaning. And one of the reasons the Old Testament is so indispensable to understanding the New Testament is exactly here. Since on the one hand, it provides us with a sense of the sovereignty and the majesty and the power of God, and on the other hand, it confronts us with the reality of human failure and human need. And in the light of these two points, the greatness of God and the sinfulness of man, the importance of priests readily emerges. And my argument is this is one of the most important spiritual truths you can know. Growth in the Christian life requires getting a clear understanding of who God is and who you are. And once you understand that, it should drive you essentially in desperation to the cross of Christ. And this is why the Apostle Paul says he gloried in the cross. He saw God as the one who dwells in unapproachable light, and he called himself the chief of sinners. And he saw the cross as the place where he found mercy. He says that in 1 Timothy. He says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So if you want to know the significance of this central theme of the book of Hebrews, you might ask God for a clearer understanding of his absolute holiness and majesty, and for deeper insight into your own sinfulness and unworthiness apart from Christ. And that will help you to appreciate what Jesus actually did for you on the cross as your great high priest, who entered into the holy place, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own precious blood, as we just sang. And you'll find that a deeper appreciation of God's holiness and your own sinfulness and the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice is one of the most practical doctrines in the Bible because it humbles your pride. And pride is at the root of every relational conflict and just about any sin you can name. So as we've gone through Hebrews, we've been looking at how Jesus is better. We saw in chapter 1, Jesus is better than the angels. And in chapter 2, uh, we saw that we were warned of the dangers of drifting away and letting our spiritual life slide. Chapter 3, we saw that Jesus is better than Moses, and that even Moses uh, wasn't able to lead people into their promised rest. And then last week, beginning at chapter 4, we saw even though Joshua led the people into the promised land, he couldn't lead them into their promised spiritual rest. And so now the writer of Hebrews wants us to see that Jesus is better than Aaron. If you remember, this letter is written to a small group of uh, Hebrew believers who are being persecuted. They're constantly tempted to return to Judaism because that would stop their suffering. And the writer is constantly trying to show them that Jesus is better than the old ways. He is a greater prophet. He is a greater king. And now he wants them to know that he's a greater priest. Now, if you know anything about Aaron, you know he was the first high priest 
other than his brother Moses, being the high priest is considered the highest position that one could have in all Israel. It requires the most spiritual person, really the best person, who could stand between God and Israel and make provision for the people's sins before a holy God. And except for that one minor incident with the golden calf, Aaron's the guy. Aaron is the man. He's the first high priest. But the writer points out that if Aaron was the high priest, then Jesus is the great high priest. And because of that, we see that Jesus is a better priest. And that's the first and only blank in your outline, I hope. So you may have noticed this is a one-point sermon this morning. It may be the only one I ever preach. But it's super important if you're going to believe that Jesus is better. Our text starts with this key phrase that sets the tone, beginning of verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest. So let me remind you a little bit about what a priest is. In the Old Testament, prophets, priests, and kings were three different things. And it's a little hard for us to get into how focused the priesthood is because the majority of you have never been to churches that have priests. Some of you have. I'm guessing about a third of you come out of an Orthodox, Catholic, or liturgical background, and they have priests. But probably two-thirds of you, you just don't know priests. That's not a bad thing. Um, you know, in our church, I'm not called a priest. But in many churches, the ministers are. And priests both speak to people, they preach and teach, but they also sympathize and serve. But in the Old Testament, a priest was not someone who spoke to the people. He was only someone who spoke for the people. That's a key distinction. In the Old Testament, the priest had his back to the people at worship because he was speaking for the people to God. His job was not to preach and to lead and to teach. That's not what priests did. His job was not to speak to the people. His job was to speak for the people. His job was to get into their shoes, feel their pain, bear their burdens, besiege heaven for them, pray for them, offer sacrifices for them. That's what a priest did. And there's two things a, a priest has to have in order to be effective. The priest has to be like us, and yet at the same time, the priest had to be unlike us. A good example, uh, in the Old Testament, a person went looking for priestly ministry and didn't really get it, is Hannah. I don't know if you remember Hannah. She's eventually the mother of Samuel. But at first, Hannah went to the tabernacle because she was absolutely upset, and she's in despair because she couldn't have a child. And she went and she looked for priestly help. And for the most part, she didn't get it. Think about this for a moment. Imagine Hannah. She comes, she pours out her life story to the priest, and if you do that, and you pour out your life story to the priest, and he says, yes, okay, yes, uh, of course, I'll pray for you. Anything else? 
There's no priestly connection there. It sounds more like a business transaction. And she looks at him, and by his words, and by his heart, and by his spirit, she knows this man has never known unfulfilled longing. This man has never known loneliness. He's never known deep disappointment. He's never known what it feels like to be abandoned by God. This man is not like me. He's having a great life, but he can't be my priest. He says, sure, I'll pray for you, but there's no real connection there. He's not like her, and she gets nothing from it. What if instead the priest looked at her and he heard her story and he begins to weep with her? And by his words and spirit, Hannah knows that this man knows unfulfilled longing. He knows disappointment. He knows what it's like to, to feel as if you've been abandoned by God. And he says, I'm going to pray for you, and he prays for her right then and there. And he says, I'm going to offer sacrifices for you, and I'm going to pray for you, and I'm going to stay with you and stand with you during this whole time and with this whole thing, and her heart is lifted up. Why? Because there is nothing like great priestly ministry. Now you see, it's not this sort of esoteric and remote thing, this priesthood thing. Because what is he? Ultimately, he's a wonderful counselor. He stands with her. She suddenly feels like she has an advocate. She has somebody who's in this uh, with her, who's come alongside of her, and she's lifted up because her priest is like her. That's the first thing a priest has to do in order to be effective. But a good priest not only has to be like you, he also has to be unlike you. Here's what I mean. Imagine again, Hannah going to the tabernacle and pouring out her trouble, and she looks up, and instead the priest says, oh, that's terrible. You're right, life is tough. I don't know how we're going to get through it. And she breaks down and cries, and he breaks down and cries, and then he hugs her and blows her nose, his nose on her sleeve. And, you know, and at some point she's like, you know, this isn't helping. I think we both need a priest. You know, you don't want a counselor who's only like you. You also want a counselor who's also unlike you. You want someone who's not only been through the dark valley that you're in, but you want someone who can say there's a way out. You don't want someone who can say, I don't know if there's any way out. You know, beats me. You know, one of the reasons the whole 12-step movement has been so successful and so effective is you walk in, you see other people who've been through what you've been through, and they made it. They survived. And just standing there and looking at you, and they said, I've been through what you're through, and I made it. What is that? Why does that transform so many lives? Just to have somebody say that. Because it's priestly ministry. So you don't just want someone who's like you. You want someone who's stronger than you, who has more hope than you do, uh, who can see the way through. You don't simply want a person who's like you. You also want someone who is unlike you. Now, having said that and having understood that, we can start to be begin to see why Jesus is a perfect priest, why he's the great high priest. Let me remind you of what I just read a few moments ago. Verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, 
but one who in every respect has been tempted, as we are, yet without sin. As we are, yet without sin. You see that? He's like us, and he's unlike us. He's the perfect priest. First of all, he's like us. It says he's as we are. How's that? It says he was tempted in every way. One of the problems with that verse is the word tempted. In English, that usually means a situation where you're being encouraged to sin. Uh, the Greek word here is actually a much more general word than our word tempt, and it really means that he's endured everything we endure, that he's experienced everything that we experience. Now somebody says, hold on. The first objection that people say is, wait a minute, he's experienced everything that we experience? He never went through a divorce like I have? He never had a miscarriage like I had? He doesn't know what it's like to be in a wheelchair? He's never been through these things? So you have to realize experiences have the external and the internal. They have external symptoms and internal uh, symptoms. You know, external, like being in a wheelchair. And internal, like the person in the wheelchair may feel real disappointment and alienation and abandonment and loneliness. So on the one hand, if you really want to press the logic, you could say that nobody has ever experienced anything that anybody else has ever experienced. Because we're all different. Every one of our experiences is as unique as a snowflake. But there are internal and underlying symptoms as well. And what are the underlying? What are the internal symptoms? Well, the same things we talked about when we talked about Hannah. What did she feel? Unfulfilled longing, deep disappointment, alienation, loneliness, a sense of being abandoned by God. And when the Bible says Jesus has experienced everything we've experienced, oh my, nobody's ever had the unfulfilled longing Jesus had. Nobody's ever had the alienation that Jesus had. No one's ever experienced the deep disappointment Jesus did. No one's ever been abandoned by God the way Jesus was. That means whatever you've experienced externally, the divorce, the miscarriage, the paralysis, the death of a child, all those things that you can say Jesus never experienced those, but the internal experience, the abandonment, the alienation, the disappointment, the despair, Jesus has experienced so much more than you and I have, than the worst sufferers in this room, than the worst sufferers in history. He's experienced so much more. In every way, he's like us. He's utterly and completely like us. But notice the text says, tempted in every way, yet without sin. As we are, yet without sin. Jesus experienced everything we've experienced, but he only responded with integrity and with love and with power. And in that way, he is so unlike us. So this is the other objection that people have. They'll say, well, wait a minute. You say he's experienced all we've experienced, but he didn't sin. So how can he know? How can he sympathize with us if he never sinned? He can't sympathize with us if he hasn't been through the sin that we've been through. Au contraire. I beg to differ. 
Because if you look carefully, both the clauses there explain sympathy, as we are, yet without sin. And the writer is saying Jesus can sympathize us because he's like us, as we are, and unlike us, yet without sin. His sinlessness is as important for his perfect sympathy as his common experience. Let me get right down to it. One of my jobs as a minister is to offer biblical counsel when asked, and sometimes when I'm not asked. But actually a number of you have found yourselves in listening situations. Some of you are actually counselors. Some of you are better counselors than I am. But a lot of you have found yourself that you're in a situation of listening to other people's problems. A few people do this a lot for you really good listeners. Is it all right if I tell everyone else about our dirty little secret? See, the dirty little secret, the main reason I have trouble sympathizing with people is not because I don't know what they're going through. It's because of my sin. It's because of my selfishness, my irritability, my impatience, my pride that makes it so hard to enter into other people's lives and enter into their experience, to enter into their hurt. One good definition of sin is self-centeredness. I'll tell you what sin makes you feel like. Sin makes you feel like nobody understands me. I am so deep. I am so complicated. No one has ever faced the things I face. That's sin. Because it's made of self-pity and self-absorption and self-centeredness. Nobody has ever experienced what I've experienced. You don't understand. My problems are unique. That's the nature of sin. Self-justifying, making excuses, feeling sorry for yourself. I'm an expert. Because I've done all that stuff. And it makes it hard to enter into somebody else's experience. The more sinful you are, the more sin has gotten a hold of you, the less sympathetic you are. And you may have, in fact, gone through what the other people are going through. But you don't feel like entering into their experience again. You don't feel any sympathy for them. You're too wrapped up in your own problems. So now do you see why Jesus is the perfect priest, the ultimate counselor? He's totally pure, totally loving, totally godly. He has none of the sin that eats up the sympathy, and yet he has all of the experiences that create the sympathy. That's hugely important. He has none of the sin that eats up the sympathy, and yet he has the experiences, those internal experiences that creates the sympathy. He's the perfect counselor. He's not like us in that sense. He's not totally wrapped up in himself. His heart goes completely out to you. He fully comes to you. He's completely wrapped up in you. He knows how many tears have gone down your cheeks. He knows the number of hairs on your head. The Bible says he loves you more than you love yourself. He's the great high priest. He is exactly what you need. How can that be? Well, let's look again at our text. We're going to jump to Hebrews 5, verse 6. Hebrews 5, verse 6, it says, 
You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's helpful. I'm like spilling all over myself, so I'm not only sinful, I'm a slob. The, uh, so what does that mean? You're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Well, in the Old Testament, one thing you never, ever see is a priest who is a king, or a king who is a priest. There's no priest kings. There's no human being who combines those two things together. You know why? Think about it. What's the king's job? The king represents God to the people. He makes the law, he gives the law, he enforces the law. The priest represents the people to God. The priest is the caregiver. He's the supporter. He's the one who accepts the people. He's the one who sympathizes with them. He's the one who speaks for the people. The king is the one who speaks to the people. So how in the world could you combine those two things in the same person? You can't. The king is the person of truth. The priest is the person of tears. Can't put them together. The king's like the stern father telling you to toe the line. And the priest is like the wonderful mother who loves you no matter what you do. You just can't put the two together except you need the two together. There's one little mysterious place in the Bible where a person shows up who's a priest king. And it's all the way back in the book of Genesis. It happens very quickly, uh, very briefly in the life of Abraham. Abraham meets this guy named Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is the king of a city who offers sacrifices to the Lord. He's a priest king. He's a king who's a priest, and he shows up for a couple of verses, and then he leaves, and no one knows who he is, and he's gone. And everybody says, who is that? What just happened? And the book of Hebrews says it's a foretaste, because the true priest king has now come. Jesus is not just a priest, and he's not just a king. He's a priest king. And if we don't have both, we're lost. He is absolutely committed to holiness and truth, and at the very same time, he's absolutely committed to love and acceptance. You can say, that's impossible. You know why it's impossible? Because people are going to fail. I'm going to fail. You're going to fail. Everybody's going to fail, right? And in the end, if you're counseling people, usually you go to one side or the other. You have to go to the truth side. You know, the problem here is sin, yours. Or you go to the tear side, and you're hugging people and weeping with them and saying you're so sorry for what they've gone through. But it's hard to put those together. You know, you either put the truth over the tears and say you need to pay, or you put the tears over truth and you're like, you know, you're flawed and I can't do anything about it. You know, it's just the way it is. Truth over tears... Tears over truth. Can't be both. Can't be both king and priest. Until Jesus shows up and says, guess what? Both priest and king. And that's what you need. How can he bring the two together? Look at the next verse, verse 7. He can bring them together on the cross. 
It says, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. When did that happen? When did Jesus cry out to God, save me from death? When did he scream? When did he agonize? When did he pray with loud cries and tears? At the very end of his life, in the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross. Why? Because on the cross, Jesus Christ took what he called the cup of wrath, the cup of eternal justice. He experienced the cup of eternal justice, and he took the penalty the human race deserved, and justice was served. Infinite love honoring infinite truth. If Jesus had been the Lord of truth over tears, he wouldn't have had to die on the cross. He just would have to declare you're a sinner. And if he had been Lord of tears over truth, again, he wouldn't have had to die. He could just said, I accept you, I love you, you're flawed, you're a mess, but it's the way it is. We're not going to worry about your sin. But he doesn't do that. Think about one instance in his life where he demonstrates that with the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. If you remember... Some of the leaders have brought this woman and basically thrown her at Jesus' feet and said, what should we do? The law says stoner. And Jesus says, okay, you're right. That's what the law says. Anybody here who has no sin, who's never sinned, who's never done it, never thought about it, you get to throw the first stone. What happens? Everybody walks away. And then we read in verse 10, John 8, verse 10, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. On the surface, that makes no sense at all. It's sin. He said it was sin. She's guilty. But he doesn't condemn her. How can he do that? How can he get away with that? How can that be? Because he takes the condemnation. Can you imagine what he was thinking when he said, neither do I condemn you? Go, and from now on, sin no more. He's saying, sister, I love you. You're not getting stoned because I'm going to the cross. I'll get the stones. I'll get the spears. <coughs> I'll get the thorns. I'll get the nails. So I... At infinite cost to myself, hate the sin and love the sinner. At infinite cost to myself, I can separate the sin from the sinner. He's a wonderful counselor. He's the great high priest. He's the only thing your heart really needs. <clears throat> Let me give you another example. Tim Keller tells this great story about when he was pastoring in Virginia, in a small town outside of Richmond, uh, many, many years ago. And uh, he says, I don't know whether they do this procedure anymore, but years ago in Virginia, I had to go through a procedure at the hospital where they pump you full with a particular fluid, <coughs> excuse me, before they x-ray you so they can see all the various things they want to see. Which means when you get up on the x-ray table, you're really uncomfortable. 
And he says he went there to this little hospital in this little town. <coughs> and the x-ray technician came in, and he was a member of his church. He was a young man, and he said he was not very gentle. Pretty brusque, had a terrible bedside manner. He said, of course, being his pastor, I was afraid to say anything wiser than me. <clears throat> so he went through, three years later, comes back, has to have the same procedure again. And he says he walks in, gets pumped with all the fluid, and there he was, same guy. So, but this time, it's very different. He's gentle, he's helpful, he's kind. And he says, so this time I said something. Then you know, your, your bedside manner's gotten a little better. And the man stopped in the x-ray room, Tim lying on the x-ray table. I have a little experience with x-ray tables. And he said, two years ago I had a kidney stone. And I went in the hospital, and I was on the table. And I went through all these procedures. I had no idea what patients go through. <coughs> said, I will never treat my patients the same way again, now that I've been on the table. The only religion in the world that says the creator God of the universe has been on the table is Christianity. Jesus has been rejected. He's been grieved. He knows alienation and loss and rejection and pain and torture and death and misunderstanding and abandonment. Jesus knows that he's been there no one could ever experience the same darkness he experienced when he was rejected, when he was abandoned, when he was killed. Jesus knows he's been on the table. And in some ways, he knows more than you and I about what we're going through. And so now that we know all that, now that we're finally at the end of the sermon, now that we know we have a priest-king who brings truth and tears, who's like us and unlike us, who wants us and promises to be with us, what do we do? How do we react? How do we respond? And that brings us now at the very end to the key verse of this passage. And that's Hebrews 4, verse 16, which says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, the sacrifice of Jesus made a way for us to enter the presence of God continually. And the sacrifice of Jesus made a way for us to enter the presence of God confidently. We can draw near to God knowing that we're wanted and welcome, and not cowering in shame or guilt, or wondering if we'll be rejected. This is not a throne of judgment. It is a throne of grace. And the ruler on this throne doesn't deal in intimidation. He gives grace. And we don't have to be afraid or ashamed. 
we can draw near with confidence that we'll be accepted and provided for. It's at this throne that we receive mercy for all our failures and grace for all our needs. Hebrews 4.16 is the verse that says, you have clout with Jesus. So are you hanging out on the far edges of knowing God because you're afraid you're not good enough? Are you feeling your way around the fringes of a real relationship with God because you bought the lie that you're not welcome? You need someone who's like you and unlike you. Someone who wants you and promises to be with you. Someone who comes to you in both truth and tears. You need a great high priest. And you have him. And his name is Jesus. And he asks that you draw near to him. So you should probably do that. And I think you should probably do that right now. So take time to pray. And then I'll close. pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that once again you have spoken to us by your Son. Thank you that you have given us a great high priest. Thank you that he will hear us no matter what. Thank you that he will love us no matter what. Thank you that he will bring us to you as a good priest does. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and see our Savior. Thank you that from him we receive mercy and find grace. Drive these truths deep into our heart. Draw us closer to yourself. Make our hearts believe, no matter what, that Jesus is better. Amen. Receive God's blessing. From the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. God bless you. We'll see you next week.